0: This is a recording of a Bible study given at the Chapel of the Open to Book, under the covering title of the Pre-Roma, and is number one of the second series, which is based upon the book of Exodus. It is our custom to read a portion of scripture at these meetings together, and if those who are listening to this recording care to join us, will you switch off for a little while while we read the seventh chapter of the Acts of the Apostles. I don't think anyone can read the seventh chapter of the Acts and then say, well, I think the book of Exodus is negligible. Let's go on. He was a man who was possessed of the Spirit of God and he gave his life for his testimony. And he's given us a very wonderful synopsis of this book and put his finger finger, on a very essential feature. Now, before we go into that, I think the first thing we will do is to consider the place that Exodus occupies in the scheme of things. We're not forgetting our all-covering subject, the pre-Roma. And we're going to see this evening that this pre-Roma, this pool to which God is working, is not attained by him or by us by just going a straight road home. Here we have the chosen people of God Being told beforehand that they're going to be in bondage in Egypt and they've got to mark time and wait, we've got to discover some of the reasons why. And by the time we've looked at this pattern in various forms, I think we shall be justified in saying, well, here's a shape of the purpose. We use the word shape usually of external measurements, but we do speak of the shape of things to come. Well, here is the shape of the purpose. Let's put it this way. There's a certain company of God's people that were chosen in Christ before the foundation or of the world. Well, they were not in existence themselves. They were only foreseen by God, but they were foreseen in Christ. Now, we might have expected that when they did come into existence, they find themselves in glory. See, there they were, right back in the beginning, chosen to have an inheritance, far above all. Then when they do come into existence, whenever the moment comes, there they are, in their position. Is that the truth? Well, if that's the truth, we're out of it, aren't we? Because, you see, some of us believe that we were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. And we believe that our inheritance places up there in that high position. But when we come into existence, we're down here. We're not only not spiritual, but we're in Adam. Even if Adam never fell, he was, he was not fit for the spiritual inheritance. But on top of that, we're not only in Adam, even though he may be a perfect man, but we're involved in sin, both of his and our own. So the pattern is a V-shape all the time, through the Scriptures, a purpose, a descent, a rising again. But it's what takes place down at that bottom that's the bit that matters most. Because, however much we may have difficulties, we realise that if there's one thing in the Scripture which is central to all the purpose of God, it's the cross of Christ. Well, that's down there, not up there had Christ clung to his position in glory (coughs) and never stooped to become a man and then went further to the death of the cross, there'd be no pre-rover. I feel there's a certain amount of reason in this that when you look at the epistle to the Ephesians, there's a strong emphasis on the word fullness. When you look at the epistle to the Colossians, which is its balancing epistle, there's a strong emphasis on the word fullness in him, dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead body, you are filled to the full in him, the church is the fullness of him. But when you come to the epistle to the Philippians, you know what the glorious word there is? If we translate it literally, he emptied himself. He emptied himself. Look at the two words. The fullness in one aspect, the self-emptying in the other. And you know as well as I do that if he never emptied himself there never would have been a fullness. And that's true of you and me and our little limits. Until we're emptied a bit there's no room for the fullness of God even in its incipient form in us. But we're dealing with a mighty subject first. Now I suppose most of us have already got enough of the scriptures in heart and mind to see that the book of Genesis anticipates the book of the Revelation. We've only got to think of the beginning, the new creation at the end, paradise lost, paradise restored, the entry of sin, death, pain and the curse, and at the other end no more sin, death, pain or curse. That's that's obvious. But sometimes we forget that the book of Exodus also. Looks to the last book in the Bible. There we have a Pharaoh who knows not the Lord, dominating the people of God in the end. There we have miracles worked by magicians when Aaron did certain miracles. The magicians at the side of Pharaoh, they did them. Once or twice they were stopped and they said, this is the finger of God. And when we get to the book of the Revelation, we get supernatural powers worked by the evil one to deceive the world. And then also we get the the plagues that fall upon Egypt, one after the other. Or when you get to the book of the Revelation, and the opening of the seals, and the vials, and the blowing of the trumpets, there's a repetition on a vaster scale of these great plagues that fall upon the earth. And they sing a song in the book of the Revelation, don't they? You know what it's called? The Song of Moses and the Lamb. The triumph of Moses after the Red Sea crossing is echoed in the book of the Revelation, and they sing the song of Moses and the Lamb. Well, that all helps us to see that we must not bypass the book of Exodus, or treat it lightly, but it's evidently a most important book, as we may imagine. Well now, first of all, let's look at the book itself, and take as our guidance the structure suggested on this chart. It divides itself into two parts (coughs) pivoted in the middle by the giving of the law Mount Sinai. The first part has to do with the condition of the people in Egypt in bondage and their deliverance from Egypt by redemption. Then we have the giving of the law. They will become a kingdom of priests if they keep the law. For Israel will never be a kingdom of priests if that condition is the only one. But thank God there's a new covenant. And there's the blood of the new covenant. And they will eventually, as we know in the book of the Revelation again, be this kingdom of priests. And then there's the second half of the book of Exodus where there are free people. They're no longer in bondage in Egypt. The Red Sea is between them. They're in the wilderness. And in the wilderness, the tabernacle is made and access to the presence of God is symbolized and worship is possible. Now that gives you the two sides of the story. Now on the further side of this chart, you will see two words. The first one is one that you will recognize the second one, you may not be so sure about. And please don't come and ask me whether I haven't spelt the word wrong on the top. Our version says Exodus with a U. The word actually is Ex-Hodos. Hodos means a way. When Christ said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, he said, Hodos, I am the way. ex means a way out. Now, I don't think you you would sit there and puzzle for hours, would you? But if ex means the way out, surely you say yourself, oh, well, I know what ex-odos means. It means the way in. Well, now, that's the two aspects of the redemptive work of Christ. I think we ought to give that the consideration first, don't you? You see, if you are in any measure uh, acquainted, with sound gospel preaching. You will often hear the preacher preaching redemption which delivers from the bondage of sin and death. And then the next preacher comes and he preaches redemption from the bondage of sin and death and you're glad. But there comes a time when you say but friend, isn't there another side to that work of Christ? Won't you ever give that a hearing too? Or what's that? Well, look. Did, did Moses go through all that wonderful ceremony of the Passover lamb and the sprinkling of the blood, and did God open a way through the Red Sea and take the children of right across? And they all lined up on the banks of the Red Sea, and the Red Sea closed behind them. They were perfectly safe. And Moses says, "Well, here you are. Good afternoon. I'm leaving you." Oh no! God says in Exodus. He would bring them out, and He would bring them in. Not only into a possession at the end, but into contact with Himself. The Passover lamb was the bringing out. No tabernacle, no altar, no priest. But the tabernacle was the bringing in. So you've never preached the full work of Christ if you leave God's people just outside their bondage. Nobody to lead them, nobody to guide them just left to themselves. You know what's going to happen? Some of them will make their way back to Egypt, because these people actually did in heart turn back to Egypt in the time of their distress. So first of all, we get these two words pinpointed so that every one of us may know them, and then we'll go on to the next aspect. The first word, Luke 9.21, well illustrated in this passage, gives us the word Exodus. Verse Luke 9 verse 28 And it came to pass about an eight days after these sayings he took Peter and John and James and went up into a mountain to pray. And as he prayed the passion of his countenance was altered and his raiment was white and district. And behold there talked with him two men which were Moses and Elias who appeared in glory and spake of his decease which he should accomplish at Jerusalem. For that word decease is the word Exodus. Moses and Elijah spoke about the Exodus which Christ was going to accomplish. Now Moses knew all about Exodus, but he'd be connected with one himself. But you know, I ever wonder, I don't know whether prophets talk together like this, but I wonder on that Mount of Transfiguration that Moses might have looked to Elijah and Elijah looked to him and said, Yes, I know what's going through your mind. Look, Moses, you were instrumental in opening the Red Sea. And you passed over dry shod. You know, he said, I often wondered why I smote the stream with my cloak and Elisha and I went over dry shod but not hit the sea. We also had our little exodus, didn't we? So Moses and Elijah, the law and the prophets, they both witnessed to a miraculous way out. <laughs> the opening of Red Sea was miraculous. The opening of the stream by the, the cloak of Elijah was miraculous. A way out. Well that's enough of that aspect I hope. That you realize that redemption is to deliver you out from the bondage of Egypt. Now let's look at the other word, Isidus. The way in. Hebrews. Chapter ten. Oh, you say Hebrews. That's the that's the uh epistle that's all about the tabernacle. Of course it is. You don't get the Passover in Hebrews. You've got to believe in people that have to be taught the blessedness of their access. So Hebrews ten Verse seventeen their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. Now, where remission of these is, there is no more offering for sin. Having, therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into. Strictly speaking, we have boldness of the Isidus. We have boldness connected with an Isidus. The opposite of the Exodus. The Exodus taking us out. All the veils going down between us and God, and we're going in. So we've got now the two. This is through the, into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way. So they are the two key words. Redemption, atonement. Two aspects of the sacrifice of Christ. Redemption is the shedding of blood that delivers you from sin and death. And the atonement is that which reconciles and gives access and acceptance. Now all that was accomplished by Christ in his one offering. But aren't we glad it's divided for us a little bit in Old Testament history, type and symbol, so that we can sit and contemplate it. Yes, yes, Christ, our Passover, hath been sacrificed for us. That's done. And then we think, Boy oh, here's an offering that's infinitely greater and better than all the blood of bulls and goats by one offering here perfected forever, them that are sanctified. So we've got the two sides. Well now that's only just a beginning of our study, a precious beginning I hope, for without it we are lost and undone. When we were reading the seventh chapter of the Acts just now, Stephen, very wonderfully led by God, Gave a quick trace through the history of his people at that period. And put his finger on two points. It's very fine to see. Or to hear. A speaker. Who's even got one point. But here's one who's got two points. But he doesn't fog himself up or his hearers. Oh my, they knew what he was driving at. However, they may have hated Stephen and rejected his message. There's not one of them said, now I wonder what he was driving at. You look at the end of it. They knew. He led them step by step to Joseph. Joseph. Hated of his brethren, sold into Egypt, lost to his brethren temporarily, and during that time, blessing Gentiles instead. But what's the key? The second time, Joseph was made known unto his brethren. Now, in case they didn't quite see the point, he took them out to Moses. And Moses came, stepped down from his royal position, went and allied himself to this people of slaves, demeaned himself, and expected, said Stephen, that they would recognize that God had sent him as a deliverer. But they turned round to him and said, Who made you a ruler over us? They always said the same things to Christ. And Moses fled after 40 years he was absent. And then the second time this Moses whom they rejected this same Moses was their deliverer. They didn't need anyone to say can you see what he's getting at? They stuffed their ears they ran upon him and they slew him. For he said you uncircumcised hearted ears, as your fathers did, so have you done. So now you see. This is giving us an idea that we may expect something like that. If this people are a pattern people, and what they do in miniature is what we can see in the large, which is often the case. I don't want to bring anything in fantastic, but you and I have passed through some periods of distress, danger, death around us. And then a certain politician, who got a little bit of an imp about him, I'm glad to say, in the midst of all the distress, in the midst of all the moments when he called upon men to blood and sweat and tears, he put up his fingers like that. Symbol of victory. Victory. Well, this is the pattern we are following. It's a V-shape. It leaves the place of peace, apparently, and goes down into the depths. Then it comes up again. So we look at it from two points of view. From one point of view, it looks like a disaster. From the other point of view, it may be the only real pledge of solid victory. You see, Let's come back to our opening thought. We were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. And we could have been taken by God and put straight into our inheritance for we never seen it. We couldn't if we were in existence. Put straight into glory. What guarantee was there that we, we wouldn't topple like the angels that fell or anybody else? Oh, in the disaster all over again. God said, no, no. You start down there. For so even God, almighty as He is, cannot give to anyone a second-hand experience. It cannot be. It's a very impossible but a very use of the terms. So much as we might wish to avoid some of the troubles we have to go through and the dark valleys we have to pursue, when at long last, we do emerge with all that behind us and all that has been done for us. It may be that we shall be so stable and so fixed that for all eternity that nightmare of falling out will never again be possible. I'm only guessing now because would you believe it? Even I don't know all the will of God or all its purpose. I'm only just probing it and seeking to open it a little bit for you. Well now, we go back then and notice on the chart one or two of these movements that help you to see that this is evidently a pattern. We first of all get Genesis 1 and 2. Chapters 1 and 2. Now it starts, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Well, I'm sure we can all agree that as the heavens and the earth came from the hand of the Creator, it was good. Couldn't help itself, could it? But then, it didn't last, for a reason that is only hinted at in various scriptures, but we can piece together a little bit. Some rebellion took place. Some fall took place. We do know at least that when Adam and Eve were placed in the Garden of Eden, there was an already fallen being waiting for them. God said everything he looked at that he created during that six days was good. And here was the Nakash, the serpent, the tempter, the one who is called Satan in the Old Testament, the devil in the new, who is finally to be destroyed and completely eliminated in God's good time. So, we have a perfect creation. Then, darkness. Chaos, lasting for we know not how long. And then comes the word, let there be light. And there was light. And the reconstruction of this earth. And then, at the end of the six days, a Sabbath, a rest, a breathing space before the next move. Well, that is repeated so that we, we don't miss the lesson. At the first, we would say, oh, well, I don't think we'd better build upon that. But then you say, but it's all over again. Take man himself. Never mind about looking at the cosmic aspect, the vast. Let's look at man, the racial aspect. Ecclesiastes, commenting upon man, says, as for God, he created man upright. Well, there's a testimony. So far as God is concerned, when man came from his hand, he was upright. But he said, he goes on to say, but he sought out many inventions. Now he's going down the stream of time from Adam. But there was that thought, that although he was upright, he had the possibility of declension. You see, some people have said, well, God is responsible. I suppose God is responsible. I'm not going to apologize for God. But God could either make a man so that he couldn't help himself. Well, then he wasn't a man, as we understand. If God had made a man so that he must, willy-nilly, just do what God said, well, he'd already got a universe of clockworks, I mean, the sun, moon, and stars, and chemical reactions, they were all going at it and didn't know they were. Now he made a man, in the likeness of his own image. Or perhaps it was a wonderful experiment, I don't know. And then God stepped back, and he didn't influence the man unduly. He gave him every encouragement, but he introduced into this world the word if. You see I've got it there, in the uh, giving of the law, that comes in that little bit. If you will keep these commandments of mine, then you will be a kingdom of priests. If you obey my word, then, if, then, if, then. So that you see, it's not possible for us to think of God having a cast iron purpose and will inflexible, because he denies it. He says, oh no, I will be forward to him that is forward. If you seek my face, I will come to you. I will seek you. So there's that responsibility.
1: But God hasn't
0: allowed the whole purpose of the ages to be poised upon man. He's got the last word. He says so. So here we have then man upright. Then, coming back to Adam, the fall and the expulsion. But then there was the restoration already in type. Because when they were outside the garden and they looked back, they saw the cherubim. And there is the cherubim waiting for them in the book of the Revelation to pledge that the kingdom that was forfeited is to be restored. So there it is, so far as the race is concerned. You see, it goes down and up. Let's look at the national. We have the nations of the earth given us in chapter 10. And then we are told by Paul in the Acts of the Apostles, that during the time of their ignorance, God winked at some of the things they did. Because he was concentrating his attention upon one nation. He wasn't dealing with the rest of the nations so personally. I always wonder what the philosophers at Athens thought of this little Jew, standing in the great city of learning, and telling them that in the days of your ignorance, God winked at Of course, you've got to be careful when you say that, but it was true, wasn't it? All the learning in the world that you can realize was connected with Athenian philosophy, Hindu philosophy that was there long before this man started. Oh, he says, from one point of view, ignorance. For the essential feature of knowledge was missing. So he said, there's the nations. And they were distributed according to the will of God around Israel as their centre. But they rebelled and they got to the land of Shinar and they said, oh, let's stop here and build a tower. And so instead of being distributed they were scattered, and it was not such a blessing as it might have been. So we have Babel and rebellion and then chapter 12. Abraham called out. But the nations are not forgotten. In thee and in thy sea shall all families of the earth be blessed. So the pattern again. So we have it so far as the world is concerned, the human race is concerned, and the nation and nation nations and nation of Israel is concerned. Well now, not to overdo it, look at the three illustrations at the bottom. Genesis 15. Will you turn to Genesis 15? Because this is the first suggestion that Israel have got to be in bondage in Egypt. (coughs) Abraham has come back from the rescue of Lot. He has given up a legitimate claim that he might have had for the spoil because he had met Melchizedek, and had come into touch with the Most High God. And then God speaks to him in Genesis 15. He said, Fear not, Abraham, I am thy shield, and thy exceeding great reward. Two things. The shield had to do with the military expedition, and the great reward was that he wouldn't take from a thread to a shoot at it, because he had come into touch with the Most High God. He forfeited a reward. And God said, it's all right, Amen." Don't sit there and say to yourself, I reckon I was a bit of a fool. Uh, I might have used that so and so and so and so. Oh, we can, friends, we can. We can do a wonderful spiritual act. And then afterwards, in cold blood, we think, well, I could have done with that. You know, might have had a washing machine or something for that money. All the things that could have been argued about. But God came in a vision and said, all right, Abraham, all right. And then Abraham turns to God. And he said, yes, yes, that's all very well, but I'm a very old man. And all that you're telling me seems to be like dust and ashes. Because there we are, just a pair of us, and we haven't got chick nor child. And the only one that's my heir will be this steward. He's a very faithful steward. Oh yes, but he's a steward after all, because that was the law. And the Lord said, no. Abraham, you come out and look at the sky tonight. And Abraham went out and looked at that Syrian sky, with the stars hanging like lamps. He said, now can you tell the number of the stars? No. Yet, so shall thy seed be. And Paul wrote sympathetic words when he said, and Abraham staggered not. He had a staggering, didn't he? When he told his wife and she heard about it, she laughed. Not because she believed it, because she thought he was a bit silly. you remember? But he believed the Lord and he counted to him for righteousness. And then the Lord added the words, I am the Lord that brought thee out of the out of, Ur- of the Chaldees to give thee this land to inherit it. Who should I bring? What guarantee have I got that we're going to inherit this land? I've come here, oh, certainly I'm here. And then the Lord did a very extraordinary thing. In proving to him that he was going to inherit the land, he said, all your descendants are going out of it. Would you say, what a backhanded way of proving anything. Well, that's the way in which we look at some of the scriptures. Because you might have expected that God would have said to Abraham, Now, Abraham, you obeyed my voice. You came out of Ur of the Chaldees to a land that you didn't know, You only knew I was leading you, you're here. You believed me when I said, so shall thy seed be.' Oh, you are a man of faith, Abraham. Now then, you just put a fence around a square mile and build your house there, and when your son is old enough, He'll build another one, and so you'll gradually inherit the whole land. That's a good idea, isn't it? But that wasn't the idea of God. It's going to follow this pattern, woo, down to the bottom. Then brought back again. He said, not a waste of time to go all the way down to Egypt. To be involved in brick making and bondage, and then have to be delivered out and brought back to the same spot. It does, doesn't it? Put it that way. But there was something about that bit of Egypt that had to be learned, and some way of being delivered that had to be impressed. Oh yes, so we'll follow the story. He's then told to prepare the sacrifices, divide them into their parts. We won't go into all the rigmarole of this, but the idea seems to be that when they made a covenant, they split the animals, or the birds, or whatever they were, in two parts, as much as to say, May the Lord do so to me and more also, if I break my part. And they both walk through the pieces. They both did, I said, in the ordinary way. So that it's become a custom in the Old Testament language. Whenever you read, he made a covenant. If you're reading the Hebrew, he cut a covenant. Now that doesn't make sense to us till we see that it was intimately connected with this cutting. Now instead of Abraham walking through the parts and taking his share and saying, if, that the other. Oh no, said God. Oh no. There's going to be no if about this, Abraham. You ask me, what guarantee had you? Well, if I'm going to leave you to do a bit, Abraham, fine fellow as you are, friend of God as you're going to be called, it'll be let down. And so he put Abraham into a deep sleep. Man in the deep sleep cannot be held responsible for anything. And then God Was the only one who made these statements. Then God spoke to him. Verse 13. And he said unto Abraham, Know of a surety that thy seed, now he's waiting for it, see, about possessing this land. Know of a surety that thy seed shall be a stranger in a land that is not theirs. Good job, Abraham was asleep. As he might have said, Oh, whoa, what guarantee have I got? Oh, wait. Let's listen to the whole thing. And shall serve them, and they shall afflict them four hundred years, and also that nation whom they, they shall serve will I judge, and afterwards shall they come out with great substance, and thou shalt go to thy fathers in peace, thou shalt be buried in the good old age. So we read in Hebrews, these all died in faith, not having received the promise but they saw it afar off and were willing to wait. The character of faith, you see. But he gives one more little bit. The fullness is coming in now, but it's the fullness of the other side. But in the fourth generation they shall come hither again, for the iniquity of the Amorite has not yet reached its fullness. Don't you see? Justice surely has got a fullness of the right side so apparently there's a limit or a fullness from the evil side. And the people of Israel had to go down into Egypt and suffer what they did because the iniquity of the Amorite hadn't reached its fullness. And that may be where we are. Instead of us being translated to glory, straight away, we've got to go through our little element of bondage and affliction because God will even keep faith with the devil himself And his time hasn't yet come. Now that's only a glimpse, isn't it? A glimpse. But a glimpse may be enough for us to say, well, if there's an element of truth in that, we must abide it. We must remember that God is faithful. And he even keeps faith with the evil one. If he's made any guarantee or what, I don't know. But we guess it's something like that. So, here Abraham has this glimpse of this pattern. He's sure that his they are going to possess that land. But they're going down into Egypt. Egypt isn't known. They're going down into Egypt. They're coming back again. And God, to give him a pledge, says 400 years. Well now you see, we've got just at uh, this first column on the chart, Genesis 15. An unconditional covenant. So shall I see thee. The interval of bondage, 400 years, the inheritance assured, they shall come again. Now should we turn to Galatians chapter 3, where we get this pattern repeated. If we see it enough times, we'll begin to believe it, friends. So we'll look at Galatians chapter (coughs) 3. Verse 15. Brethren, I speak after the manner of men, now when Paul says a word like that, he's not going to quote scripture. He's going to refer to something which belongs to the people that he's addressing. And of course that's a word to us. We mustn't so get the idea in our mind that because the scripture is God's truth, a man's word is fallible, that whenever we're talking to anybody at any time, we're we'll always quoting scripture because we've got another pattern upon it. When the Apostle Paul stood at Athens, he never quoted Scripture at all. He quoted their own prophets, and he pointed to their temples, and he pointed to an inscription he'd read. What's the good of quoting Genesis or Exodus to the philosophers at Athens? He'd only started them arguing, well, who's Moses? And you never get anywhere. When you read John's Gospel, which is the Gospel... For the world in which we live. He doesn't quote the scripture like Matthew does. Matthew says, and it was fulfilled, and it was fulfilled, and it was fulfilled. But John is witness. We bear record. This is the testimony. One thing I know, says the blind man. Don't you see? So that we're not betraying truth. when We come where the man is, and start where he is. So, we have this. I speak after the manner of men. Though it be but a man's covenant, that's the will that the man has made, yet it be confirmed, no man add it or addeth thereto. Now he says to them in effect, look Galatians, you know that when you make a will, according to the Galatian law, when once it's attested, you yourself cannot alter it. It's not like the will in this country. You can't make a second one. That's the law and it's verified by their documents. When he says to me, do you mean to tell me that a man's will can be so made that nothing that happens afterwards can ever alter it, and yet God's will is going to be not right and left? Don't you see that's what he's leading to? So let's come on. Verse 16. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He saith not unto seeds as of many, but as of one, and to thy seed which is Christ. And this I say, that the covenant that was confirmed before of God in Christ the law, which was 430 years after, cannot disannul that it should make the promise of none effect. He says just as surely as your will, once it's made, can never be altered by anything that happens. So when God made that promise to Abraham, even the coming of Mount Sinai afterwards, with all its gifts, will never alter that fact that at long last that people, that chosen people will be back in their land. As Paul picks it out in Romans 11, that people are at this moment enemies because of the gospel, and yet they're beloved because of the fathers, for the gifts and calling of God and without repentance. The difference between the 400 years and the 430 would take us a little bit wide of our mark this evening. It's only that one starts from when the promise was made, and one goes back to the moment when Abraham started as cutting out of the Chaldeans. But there's no um, disruption. They both meet at the same end. So when we get to the book of Exodus, you are fine. I think we ought to see it for ourselves, the book of Exodus. We're supposed to be looking at Exodus, aren't we, this evening? Oh, wouldn't be a bad idea to look at one verse in it, would it? Uh, chapter 12 is the uh Passover. And now we read that they're out. And in verse 40 of chapter 12, now the sojourning of the children of Israel who dwelt in Egypt was 430 years. And it came to pass, at the end of the 430 years, even the self-same day it came to pass, that all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. So, there was the descent there was the marking time, there was the deliverance, and back at the tick of the clock. So now we get Galatians 3, an unalterable covenant. Nothing can disanun it that comes subsequently. Then there's the interval of bondage, the 430 years that the inheritance is sure, because it is by grace and through faith. We come to our only epistle Turn the page to Ephesians. And we find the same pattern is there. We have not an unalterable covenant. There are no covenants in the Ephesian position. It's just sheer grace. But we have unmerited favour cho- according as He hath chosen us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love. There it is chosen in him. Then we have the interval of bondage, verse 7, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. So we need exactly the same as Israel did. Although we were chosen and although we were predestinated, we find ourselves in bondage for this word. Uh, Forgiveness is the word that means to set the prisoner free, to release. And then we come out into an inheritance, verse 11, in whom also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestinated, we're back to where God intended we should be. But all following the same line. Well, now I hope that that hasn't been a waste of time. We've done this evening what perhaps we ought to do many more times We've given the subject over and over again, haven't we? Catch at it. Well I believe it was necessary that we should see that this book of Exodus is a book that we cannot possibly ignore. We don't want to, but we may want to go into it more now. We say, Yes, I think that's the pathway. Most evidently the pathways that the redeemed have trod before. And even though we're going to different phases and different callings There's a parallel in the works of God with men, whether you're on earth or in heaven. So, when we meet together next time God will eat, without this preparation, we'll be able to pick up the thread and carry it forward. But there's one feature that I must mention before I finish. Stephen reminded the children of Israel and quoted from their Old Testament prophet that when they were in Egypt, They worshipped other gods. They did evil. Now that's wise for us to remember that, lest we say, it's all very well being afflicted down here because of that Amorite up there. But it's not all that, great. We can't say that all the time of our waiting in our spiritual Egypt, we've always been perfectly loyal to God, even though we couldn't understand. We have sinned. It could be laid to our charge that we departed from the name of God. And God said to them, all the time you were in Egypt, and while you wandered in the wilderness, there were many things that I laid upon you to do, and you undertook to do, which you never did. So, it makes us less likely to turn round and speak against these things of God, because we know full well in ourselves that whatever may be true about our relationship to the fall of Adam. And whatever may be true about the purpose of God and necessitates that we should become in bondage for a time. We know full well that there are some things about it that we cannot shirk or put onto somebody else's shoulders. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So there's a double need for deliverance. One, because it was the purpose of God we should go down into Egypt, and the other is when we got there. We got perilously like the Egyptians ourselves and needed to be cleansed and redeemed and brought back. So God willing, next time we meet together, we've given this aspect of consideration, we then give the book of Exodus an opportunity itself to speak. Of the Exodus, the way out, the Exodus, the way in.